Hello, it's Anthony Chadwick from the Webinar Vet, welcoming you to another episode of the UK's number one veterinary podcast, Vet Chat. And I am honoured honored and privileged today to have Henry Lamb here, who is the Young Vet of the Year 2023, as voted for by BVA. Uh, congratulations on that, Henry, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, that's a very warm, <laughs> warm intro. I, yeah, I've got, now got to live up to the title for the next year. But um, yeah, no, honestly, yeah, very grateful to have to have been selected. But uh, yeah, still, still processing it. Yeah, brilliant, Henry. Well, I was at the dinner, and it sounded like you were up against two other uh, very good candidates. Um, but obviously, doing some really good stuff. Qualified from the Royal Veterinary College in 2018, and almost immediately, you've. And it sounds like during um, university times, you had this deep interest in population science and also in in poultry. Uh, And that's where you found yourself down in deepest, darkest Norfolk, isn't it? Uh, Well, yeah, so I was born in Norfolk, so I've come back home, but um, born in Great Yarmouth, of all places. Um, Not that that you should admit to that on the podcast, but there we go. Um, So, yeah, no, come back home to work, uh, although we we work in lots of other places in the country. But, yes, no, started start sort of an interest in poultry probably from the age of about 16 when I first worked on a on a poultry farm there's plenty of them in Norfolk so I got some exposure um and uh yeah sort of kept it as a background interest throughout university and um to be honest I, I was interested in everything at vet school I, I had to go at everything in rotations thinking it would rule things in and out um and it didn't rule anything out so I just had to make a decision in final year and this was still something I was interested in and thought Hey, population medicine, I'll, I'll give it a go. And I haven't looked back since, so yeah. And it's always good to uh, throw yourself into things, isn't it? If you if you hold yourself back, you don't know what you're what you're missing. Yeah, well I did have some other I did have some other offers job where I think one of them was um perhaps even dairy in New Zealand and sort of quite you know, quite exciting things that were non poultry related. But I always thought I would end up coming back to doing something that was sort of larger population medicine, public health type role. Um, and the, the offer was here and I had the chance to, to come back home to Norfolk and come back to the community that I enjoy living in. So I thought, well, why not? The offer's there and um, might as well start now. Well, I, I'm the same. I was born in Liverpool, went to university in Liverpool, went out for a couple of years doing the, the mixed practice that most vets at that time did and then gravitated back into Liverpool to do uh, to do small animal practice. So uh, it's it's not unusual to like where you've been brought up is it so well done for getting back obviously you were talking about new zealand there you know the cattle dairy industry quite extensive compared with the uk's intensive industry you've obviously gone into a an industry poultry which is also quite intensive i mean how is um how is the situation there i know you you're also working with game birds which is extensive the poultry industry seems to have a bit of intensive which is around the meat production but a lot of eggs now are produced via free range, aren't they? And and breeding and so on. So, what what's the state of the poultry industry? It's it's a growing industry, isn't it? We're eating more and more chicken, which seen as a as a greener meat, I suppose, by some people. What 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 are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, definitely in terms of in terms of an industry, it's a lot more varied, I guess, than comparing something like cattle. And the fact that, as you say, you've either sort of got dairy and beef. Um, yeah, I guess for poultry, we've got lots of different species that are within that, uh, and and how a how a goose farm and a duck farm looks compared to how a chicken or a turkey farm looks can be quite different. Yeah, um, and within that, obviously, we've then got meat types and, and egg types. So we've got quite a lot of variety for an industry that I think a lot of people figure as being quite niche, but actually, there's quite a lot of variety. Um, 
as you say, it was a real mix. So if you're going into, say, the commercial layer sector, in, in the UK at least, the majority of the, the eggs that are laid and produced here will be free range. Um, that's definitely what the UK consumer is after. Um, then we have some organic flocks and we do still have some, some barn flocks. Um, there are still a, a very small number of, of cage layer flocks. Um, battery cages are no longer a thing. They haven't been a thing for over a decade now. Um, there are enriched cages, um, but you know, there's a, there's a sort of a real mix in terms of the layer sector. If you compare it to other parts of Europe, it's quite different. For example, the Netherlands, loads of barn eggs, you know, they tend to be in more, more of an indoor system. So there's quite a lot of variety even compared to our, our closest neighbours. Um, as you say, the meat sector perhaps tends to be a little bit more sort of indoors. Um, you know, a lot of turkey producers, a lot of duck producers will be in sort of more kind of traditional Yorkshire bordered um, indoor barns that people would recognise more perhaps as a farm building. Um, but that's not to say that there aren't free range meat birds. There are quite a lot of free range broiler chickens in, in the UK um, and they sort of have a brood and move type system. Um, but yeah, as you say, there's quite a lot of variety um, in terms of efficient use of feed and efficient use of land space. Um, poultry seems to be the way to go if you want to grow protein sustainably. I mean, that and aquaculture, that and fish. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it, it's certainly an interesting and quite a dynamic sector to be in with a lot of variety in terms of where it's going. And because it's more sustainable, um, does does feel like it's probably going to be here long term still to come especially worldwide it's interesting you know looking at barn eggs which i know were more popular 20 30 years ago we seem to i seem to see less of them in the in the shops but obviously a big system in the netherlands versus free range we can often talk about free range being obviously the best welfare but of course you can get free range flocks that are poorly managed and have poor welfare because they're outside in the cold and you know uh, parasite ridden whereas barn potentially well run uh you know can have better welfare can't it so it's it's a bit simple to say you know oh well yeah. free range are obviously better than than uh, barn for example yeah but like anything in life i mean nothing's ever black and white i think um the reality as you say is it doesn't necessarily come down to the production system each production system has its own pros and cons um yeah. i mean you mentioned the, the game bird side of things earlier whether it's a whether it's a, a pheasant rearing site or a free range layer site or a or even a, a, a conventional, um, you know, indoor broiler farm. The reality is that any of these systems have have advantages. Any of these systems have disadvantages. If you've got a good stock person who's running it and managing it, um, that that's the key. Yeah. Uh, I've been to some, you know, I think the game bird industry has a bit of a perhaps reputation outside of, you know, for those who are working outside of it who maybe don't have any exposure to it. I think a lot of people sort of just presume it's a bit like the Wild West. Um, in reality, I've been to some amazingly run estates that are doing loads of conservation work. The welfare is really, you know, really impressive. They've yeah. got biodiversity policies and so on and so forth. And you compare that to a, a poorly run, what you would think perhaps would be a, you know, something that's got all, all the bells and whistles, singing and dancing type setup. And, and actually, at the end of the day, it's about people, really. If you've got the right people in there, then that's what yeah. matters. And obviously looking now at free range and we've had bird flu and housing orders, I know there isn't any in place at the moment, but how has that affected things and do housing orders really work? Yeah, so the, the housing orders ones are always a challenge. They do make a difference. Um, the challenge with them is when to introduce them. Um, if you go too early, um, 
you say, say you introduce it in late September or early October, when traditionally the risk has been a bit lower, um, they tend to have a limited time span. So you could introduce it in early October, but then you might be lifting it, say, in, in late January, early February, when the risk period in terms of circulating virus could still be quite high. And then you've got more immunologically naive birds that are then put out into a high risk area. So you can't go too early with it. Um, and I guess there's a commercial aspect of that as well in terms of the the 16 week derogation that the, the flocks will get in order to sell the free range eggs as barn yeah. eggs. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's the timing of it's quite challenging. Um, they do make a difference. They do reduce the, the risk of flu by a factor of four. Um, but then the research that EFSA, so the European Food Safety Authority, has done shows that having good biosecurity reduces your risk by a factor of 44. So they do make a difference, but they're not going to just put the chickens in and say, oh, they're safe. Yeah. Allow any complacency, because if you're then not still doing all your things, you know, barrier stepovers, foot dips, wheel yeah. washers, visited books, you know, if, if all of that is going by the wayside because they're inside, then you're not any safer. How is the, you know, you've obviously been at the front line of bird flu. How, how sort of pathogenic is is the virus? Is that ameliorating over time? It seems to have been a really severe outbreak. I live at the beach at Crosby, you know, seen guillemots here uh, just, you know, on paths. So they've obviously fallen out of the sky virtually onto the uh, the paths, you know, quite a distance away from the water. I've seen um gulls and cormorants and so on um you know give us a little bit of an insight as to what's happening with bird flu and do we expect that to continue or are things starting to get better okay this might be a long answer i'll try, <laughs> I'll try and summarize three years in yeah not three years um so the, the sort of the last few years we've had three consecutive bird flu seasons at records three consecutive records yeah. in a row so the first one of that, you go back to 2020, um, we had H5N8, um, so highly pathogenic avian influenza, influenza A subtype H5N8. Um, that gave us about 30 cases in the UK, um, which at the time we thought was quite a large number. Traditionally, you know, we might have had one or two. Um, if you cast your mind back, I think we had one in, so I live in South Norfolk, we had one near us in 2016, I believe, down sort of Redgrave Way. You know, it was one case, news helicopters circling, circ you know, circling the farm. Uh, all the press was saying everyone was going to die. You know, that's sort of really dramatic response to one case. Um, so, yeah, roll on to 2020. We had 30 cases, um, barely made the news because COVID and everything was going on at the time. Yeah. Um, so we thought, OK, this is quite a lot. We hope next year isn't like this. That year was quite bad for the free range layers because um, the, the virus got introduced into, into Lincolnshire, where it's quite a layer heavy population and because a lot of them were free range and it had a bit of a sort of target rich environment i suppose for a want of a better term um but moving into 2021 and 2022 what we've been dealing with unfortunately is an even nastier um version which is so highly pathogenic flu again uh, h5n1 this time um specifically i believe the uh the clade is 2.3.4.4b um but that's about as close to being a virologist as I'm ever going to get. Um, but essentially, yeah, it seems to be more pathogenic, seems to be more transmissible. Um, it's obviously caused hundreds. I think we've had somewhere around 350, you know, cases of H5N1 in the UK in, in, in domestic poultry. Um, 
how many in places like backyard flocks that perhaps aren't reported, we don't, we don't know. Um, and of course, it's been quite frankly catastrophic for a lot of the, the wild seabird populations, as you've referenced just there. And you take into account the amount of islands we have. Um, I, I found out the other day, apparently the UK has something like 6,289 islands, if you count all of the remote Scottish you know, how many of those have seabird populations that we're not aware of and not actively monitoring um, as effectively as perhaps places like the Farne Islands, where there is regular monitoring? Um, we know for a fact that there's nearly 10,000 dead birds there in the last two years. So, I mean, from an ecological point of view, it's been, um, I hope not disastrous, but it's been pr pretty horrendous on that point as well. Uh, in terms of where we're going into the next year um so we're we're now into what would be classed as the next sort of flu season so it runs from october to, to september yeah we've got five commercial cases since october this year that's not obviously that's not good but at the same time by this time last year we were already at like 85 so yeah. it's it's a lot better than it was there's some immunity coming into the flocks so in terms of wild bird immunity there does seem to be some positive news that, that that appears to be playing a role. Um, and it seems that the migratory birds that are coming over as well seem to have some sort of immunity. So our domestic wild bird population and our migratory wild bird population appear to have been exposed to H5N1. Um, and it's worth mentioning that this has not just been this bad in the UK, it's also been record levels in you know, the United States, Europe, um, it's reached countries in South America it's never reached before. So the whole world has been dealing with this panzootic effectively in the background. Um, so a lot of the migratory birds are also seem to be have some sort of base level of immunity. You know, there's papers that suggest that there's iritis, you know, changes in the eyes and things that demonstrate there's been um, some neurological inflammation in, in survivors. So combination of wild bird immunity and I think a lot of lessons around where biosecurity could, well, biosecurity yeah. was already very good in the poultry industry, but the last two years have been a wake up call to areas that we could be even better at. Um, and I think a lot of people have learned a lot of hard lessons. Um, you know, sadly, we've, we've you know we've perhaps got better in some areas around things like litter storage, for example. That um, that is now making a big difference going forward. So I think yeah. the poultry industry, the game bird industry, is a lot more aware of the risks. Um, it's aware of the areas that we could further improve on, and I think that combined with a gradually reducing level of viral challenge touchwood we seem to be um seem to be seeing less of the h5n1 that being said there now seems to be h5n5 heading across europe so what's this space is yeah. relevant or any different? Uh, you know i enjoy going out into the countryside to a local nature reserve and it seems to have just been so much quieter over the last 12 months uh just with the amount of you know birds that are around so it's uh Hopefully, yeah. we're coming to the end of this uh, period. No, I, I, I certainly hope so. And I mean, it, it's impossible to talk about bird flu without talking about. I mean, the impact on the bird side of things has been horrendous. You know, I think we're at sort of eight point three million birds that have been culled commercially. You know, as yeah. I say, the, the, at least five hundred thousand wild birds have have died. But in reality, how do we know the real figure? It's got to be. Yeah, it's got to be way on higher than five hundred thousand. So, I mean, in terms of bird losses it's been awful but it's also impossible to talk about the topic without talking about the impact on the people involved as well of course I mean, you know the, the these are people that have you know devoted their lifestyle to to looking after birds to to, to working in the countryside and you know to to have to deal with 
mass mortality incidents. It's not just mass mortality, it's mass morbidity. Um, you know, these are extremely sick birds that die very quickly and it's very unpleasant for yeah. anyone to have to be dealing with, let alone if it's your livelihood, livelihood uh, but, yeah. also, but also your passion. Like people yeah, don't you're know. connected to the, the birds yeah. and their welfare as well, aren't you? It's, yeah. it's probably, you know, as big as foot and mouth in 2001, but obviously less visible because they are inside a lot and, and you know, people won't be aware of it but of course you know foot and mouth in 2001 caused a lot of hardship in the farming industry lots of people you know became ill with depression etc etc uh so i th- i hope that the government is supporting these uh industries you know sufficiently to to protect them and so on yeah i mean as you say foot and mouth well, before my time as a vet but obviously very much aware of it and studied it but yeah, equally horrendous in terms of people what people had to go through. As you say, actually, in terms of numbers, it's probably less. But 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 the, there's something very visceral about you know big burning funeral pyres of cattle yeah. that people can see in the countryside, isn't there? Yeah. Um, and as you say, actually, maybe that in terms of people's awareness and support for the poultry industry, perhaps actually that's where um, you know perhaps a victim of their own success in biosecurity, the law of it just has happened behind closed doors. You know, the, the, yes. these units have just, they, they've cracked on, they've, they've they've identified the problem, they've resolved the problem, the places get cleaned out, everything's done very professionally, but but it's also not really in the public eye. And, uh, you know, it, it, there's, there's not sort of probably the same level of awareness or, or kind of support or sympathy, perhaps, because it, people it's just not on people's um, consciousnesses, perhaps, as much. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, in terms of government support, don't get me wrong, I think the government can be doing a lot more for rural areas in general. I think um, there's reports that I'm not going to get political, but, you know, there are a lot of reports out at the moment about how rural areas and rural poverty and, and rural mental health compared to um, the support that goes into to urban areas, especially London. There's, there's a massive gulf. Um, yeah. uh, and I don't know if that's going to change anytime soon. Um, in the meantime, we have got, great institutions locally i'm really honored to work for a um, mental health charity uh, joined the board of trustees six months ago um that that works in east anglia um for anyone in an agricultural business um and oh, fantastic. yeah is that yana yeah so it stands for you are not alone um the uh, yana, everyone knows it as yana for, for short and yeah. um, uh it's a fantastic um i'm really honored to have joined the it, it's got an amazing reputation around here we we um thankfully i think we're quite well thought of um and sadly it's sort of a, i don't know it, i guess it's a bittersweet thing we're busier than ever which is sad yeah. that people need us more than ever but at the same time is that because people are more aware that they can talk to us and and and, and the people who weren't utilizing the resources now are so it's always difficult mm-hmm. to know whether being busier is a good thing or not but um yeah we've, we've got a helpline we've got um mental health first aid training uh, we offer um and you know, anti-suicide awareness resources and things like that so they're really quite active yeah. in the in the area yeah because it's a big problem obviously within the veterinary industry as we know but also within farming i think they're, they're very similar industries aren't they and there can be that isolation for a farmer working on his own maybe with one other person and troubles start to mount up you know you see the death of a large number of your animals and of course that that really can push people down, can't it? No, exactly. Well done on that work as well. That's really yeah. important. 
Yeah, thank you. I think the, the reality is that we're all really, especially in terms of farm vets, we're all really in it together, to be honest. Um, yeah. We're all part of an allied industry, whether it's, you know, whether you're working directly in agriculture, whether you're working as a supplier, as a vet, yeah. we're all being exposed to similar things and we're all trying to achieve the same goal. And I think it's just a case about being there for each other, really. As you say, vets and farmers, we've got very similar very similar um, statistics, um, yeah. and probably very similar personality types, and and, yeah. uh, and I think perhaps we, um, yeah, we will be working closely together um, in professional setting, and I, and I hope that um, in a sort of personal setting, some of the charities that are out there, you know, Yana, um, as you say, Vet Life, um, yeah. you know, all, all of these institutions will, will will be sort of working as part of a network as well in in a, in a region. So yeah, it's all just about pulling together really. Did you know the webinar vet, Virtual Vet and Weed Congress is back for 2024? Starting on the 5th of February, we have 10 hours of continuing education with speakers such as Sarah Heath, John Chitty and Samantha Taylor and many, many more. We'd love to see you there. Um, if you'd like to get involved again this year or if you'd like to join us for the very first time, please click the link in the description below to find out more. We, we talked uh, briefly before we came on about um sustainability is one of my big passion points you know it's very difficult to run a business if you don't have a planet and i know you've also similarly to ourselves uh, been awarded the investors in the environment green mark which is obviously a heist they don't do gold they do bronze silver and then green which i think is very appropriate yeah doing some great work there before we chatted you know particularly around uh, circularity with the, the lab you know using less single-use plastic. Tell, tell us a little bit about that story. Uh, yeah, so that's um, that's something. So I joined the practice in 2018, um, and I'm trying to think when we first started doing it. It's probably about 2019 we um, we kicked off. We went straight for silver. Um, we got that, and we thought, well, we're already doing a lot of the things that are green level. Um, let's see if we can make it. Um, and, and, yeah, we did it the, the first time of asking. So we've we, we've gained our green level. I think it made us not only the first poultry practice, but the first 100% farm animal practice to, to get yeah. green with IIE. So that was a really big milestone for everyone. Um, and it's had really good buy-in from everyone in the practice. I mean, everyone's really um, enthusiastic. People are constantly coming up with ideas and saying, why don't we give this a go? Why don't we, you know, why don't we try that? Um, so we've maintained the green membership. We've got our next audit in two months time. So I've got to get all the paperwork lined up um, as digitally as possible, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's really good to be part of. We, we've taken a bit of an approach. So we've, we've got a UCAS accredited lab. We've got an admin team. We've got the vets. Um, we're obviously all using shared resources. We've, we've broken it down into four sections. We've got the vet team kind of action plan. We've got the lab, we've got the admin team, and then we've got sort of general resources, you know, electricity, water, things like that. Yeah. Um, and then within that, we try and give some ownership and some scope to each of those teams to to drive what they think is best for their area. Because realistically, you know, I, I've had some lab training, but I'm not working in the lab every day. I I, I won't know the sort of things that are going to make a sort of real difference. And yeah. it, it's great to give people sort of power over where that process is going, um, and then hopefully give them the credit and give them the reward where it's due. Because at the end of the day, the the lab team. Um, for example, this year they've uh, reduced single-use plastic just in one area of our lab around how um, our, our media plates are stored. 
um, which is going to reduce 8,000 bits of plastic a month, which uh, that's probably a conservative estimate as well. So we're talking 96,000 bits of plastic a year that aren't yeah. going on a beach or, you know, it, it being incinerated. And, and that's just one thing that they've come up with as a project. There's, there's dozens of others. So, um, you know, credit where credit's due, the whole team is really just, you know, out, this is stuff that's going on in the background that isn't necessarily a primary service the practice yeah. is delivering, but it's just going on in the background and, and it's amazing to hear when we check in in our quarterly meetings what people have achieved in the few months since we last spoke. Um, the the carbon footprint side of things for us, the big challenge is the amount of driving we do, um, and especially the last couple of years with all the movement license visits, we're just yeah. driving in circles, stamping bits of paperwork for um, weeks on end. Um, but yeah, we've got two vehicles over to hybrids now. Uh, we're reviewing feasibility for electric vehicles probably a challenge with the the remote areas we're working with and, and the amount of driving we, we have to do on the vet side of things but certainly other members of staff and, and our clients are, are considering going to evs so yeah. looking to get a charging point having a meeting with someone later today about perhaps getting a charging point installed so yeah i think things are moving um and it, it's it's nice to have a framework with ie that allows you to kind of think in a structured way right well you know we look back over the last year we've We've reduced in these areas we've achieved this you know what's our biggest areas to tackle going into mm-hmm. next year so i think the first year or so it's quite easy to tackle the low-hanging fruit you know yeah um but after a year or two if you want to continue making the sustained drive you have to sort of you need a bit of guidance on which areas to focus on so it is very helpful to to have them as a, a structure mm-hmm. at least to to look where you need to be going for next i think it's interesting as well because he's not totally obsessed with carbon you know my my son was talking to me the other day and saying you know everybody talks about carbon and i kind of agree with him to a degree you know we don't talk enough about biodiversity and 30 by 30 obviously an area that you can work in you know with your game bird stuff and then of course we've got you know the plastic pollution and circularity which is another big area as well but uh I know with your admin team, you're trying to reduce the amount of paper you use as well. Yeah, yeah, and and they've, and and between them and our, I have to must admit, a lot of credit probably has to go to our IT manager because he's turned a lot of our digital systems, um, so a lot of our old reporting systems. That you know, every report got printed, um, and that's now being converted effectively into into sort of paperless reporting. We've already done most of our lab reporting that way. Um, you know, our, our serology and our uh, TVCs, for example. Um, we've still got areas that can still go paperless, um, but we've, we've certainly chopped a lot of the paper out of the system. And I think the last year we, we processed something like 75,000 blood samples alone. Or so. so when you consider the amount of samples that go through the lab, each of which could generate a bit of paper. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of trees saved, hopefully. Although, sadly, with the amount of AI paperwork we've been having to do, it's probably been counterbalanced by all the vets printing out movement license paperwork that the government needs to. Yeah. So when these things come in waves, at the end of the day, that's out, that's out of our control. Um, you can only control what you can control. Um, and, and our internal paperwork, at least, is a lot more efficient and a lot more digital. And, and sometimes governments are the slowest to sort of take on things, whereas business and individuals will move a lot quicker. So, yeah, well done on, on all of that work. I think. In, 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 fairness so to the, in fairness to the APHA credit where credit's due, they are looking at more digital um, yeah, movement license signing going forward, but um, yes, the first at least the first AI season was a lot of trees <laughs> yeah. for movement license paperwork. But there we go. Yeah, so hopefully, yeah, there'll be there'll be more, um, as you say, digital. But of course, even digital then has a cost because it depends where your servers are and are they using green electricity. So as you said before, 
as you get a little bit older, you realise there's no black and white. There's always a lot of grey around, isn't there? No, no. It's, it's, it becomes more and more of a minefield the more you think about it. But um, you can, as I say, you can only control what you can. Um, yeah. If you can see that you're making a tangible difference where you are, that's something. Um, uh, as you said earlier um, when we were chatting before coming on, I mean, it does all add up. You know, if, if just one lab in Mid Norfolk can save ninety six thousand bits of single use plastic in one area, you know, if everyone did that, um, yeah, we'd be having to pick a lot less off the beaches. The key is starting the journey, and once you start the journey, you realise sometimes it does get a bit complicated, and there are times when you go backwards to go forwards, but. Yeah. it's it's having that hope that we can do something about it and actually take some positive steps and if everybody does a little bit it adds up to a lot doesn't it yeah exactly um and, and you can't you also can't take responsibility for society as a whole you know you can only do what what you can do yeah. and, and as you say things like green electricity going through servers i mean i'm i don't, I don't profess to be much of a tech wizard at the best of times but that is clearly way beyond the scope yeah. or the control of, of a business um such as a vet practice but um if 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 lots of vet practices and lots of other businesses are, are very mindful about what they want to do sustainability that pressure does go back up the supply chain and as a society exactly. move in the right direction but yeah at the same time you can't um it's very easy to to watch the news and get as you say kind of climate uh climate anxiety climate sort of disaster about it but um if you can if you can make a difference in the practice you're working in or the business you're working in, at least that's something tangible that you you can sort of look at and hold and say, well, okay, well, if we did that, um, yeah, and it's hoping, it's trying to get that message across that if everyone does a bit of that, it does add up. Well, thanks for all that you're doing for the environment. I think it's really important we all work together. The we we had a psychiatrist on the Mind Matters Initiative a few years ago now, uh, who was talking about solastalgia, which is now the medical condition which basically encompasses climate anxiety so there's a, a new word for you henry that's okay that's <laughs> learn something every day exactly this is this is the key isn't it this is the key with learning uh henry thanks so much for that that's been really uh fantastic given me an in, insight into you know how the poultry industry is working you know the the terrible times with bird flu which i've certainly seen you know from the countryside perspective you're obviously working right at the cold face of that. So, uh, you know, I know that's probably been really tough. So uh, congratulations for all the hard work you're doing in that area and with the environment as well. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we will see you soon at, a, a, at an event and we can uh, hopefully see how you're coping with the year as Young Vet of the Year. No pressure. <laughs> well, I'll try and just keep more of the same. I think it seems the last year seems to have gone well, so we'll just try and um, keep it up. The uh, the exciting thing for twenty twenty four on my end is we've got our uh, rotation with the Royal Vet College starting. So looking forward to to running that um, between the practice and the vet and um, the vet college. Brilliant. We've got our first students coming in May, so yeah, that's the that's the big task for next year. Fantastic, Henry. Thank you so much for. I know how busy you are for agreeing to come on to the podcast. Tell us a little bit about the work you're doing. No, thank you for having us on. Congratulations on the, the award. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll we'll bump into each other very soon. Yeah, I'm sure we will. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. Thanks very much, Henry. And you too. Thanks everyone for listening. Hopefully see you on a webinar or, an, or a podcast soon. Take care. Bye-bye.